O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to you that you are so abundantly gracious toward us, that you have revealed to us the truth of your holy word. And as we come now into your presence, we pray, Father, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, give us understanding and insight to the truth of your word here. And that as your word goes forth, it truly would find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil, which brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. How are we to live as, as saints, as holy ones, and as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century? Well, this is the theme uh, that we're going to be focusing on in our study of the book of Philippians and the question that we look to, uh, to ultimately answer. And so as we continue this morning looking at the, uh, the opening of Paul's letter, we see that even here, through his words and, and through his example, the apostle uh, challenges the Philippians and he challenges us to live as Christ has called us to live. And in the five verses before us this morning, we see that Paul packs in many great lessons that help us to know how we are to live as saints today. And these lessons are lessons about prayer, about God's preservation of us, and about our participation in the gospel and in its ministry. And so first we want to begin by considering what we learn here about prayer. Paul makes a a habit in all of his letters uh, to share his prayers with those that he's uh, writing to. And Paul does this not just to assure his audience that that he remembers them by upholding them in prayer, and that certainly is an important part of it, But actually also by doing this, Paul is actually looking to give them an example of how they ought to pray as well. Let me think back to to Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus, uh, the disciples asked Jesus, look, the, uh, the, uh, the Pharisees teach their disciples to pray. John has taught his disciples to pray. We want you to teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, giving... Uh, the instruction through what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Well, the Apostle Paul, in a similar way, just as Jesus taught his disciples, Paul is is looking to, he's including the, these prayers in his letters as a way to, to teach the early Christians, to teach the early church, how they should pray by giving them examples. Again, remember, many of these uh, converts, especially here in Philippi, uh, were Gentiles, and uh, the way they may have prayed to their idol gods would have been very different. So Paul is saying, look, this is how we pray as the people of the one true living God. Now, although Paul doesn't actually get to the supplication or the petition part of his prayer until verse 9, what we have in these uh, verses 3 through verse 7 is his giving of thanks and praise to God for these Philippian believers. Now, we noted previously that Paul wrote this letter in part 
really kind of as a, as a thank you note to the Philippians for their support of his ministry. They supported him financially by sending gifts to him, as well as they even sent Epaphroditus to assist Paul in his ministry. And so they're great supporters of uh, this missionary, the Apostle Paul. And so Paul is, is looking to thank them uh, for that in this letter. But here, his first thanks is not to the Philippians, but his first thanks is directed toward the Lord God. In verses 3 and 4, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with joy. And so we hear that Paul is emphasizing this giving of thanks in, uh, to God. And certainly giving thanks is an important element of prayer. God, we know, is the giver of every good and perfect gift, and so He's worthy to be thanked. He's worthy to be praised for the blessings that we receive from Him. Now, to the Apostle Paul, the Philippian believers were truly good gifts which God has given him. And when he remembers them, he's thankful that God has blessed his ministry with this kind of of fruit. But we should note that Paul isn't placing the emphasis on what he has done, nor is he placing the emphasis on what the Philippians are doing, but on what God has done, and how God has enabled them all to live and work for his glory. Now we'll see this later as Paul is especially thankful that God's Spirit is truly working in them, and he's confident of this because it's evident by the Philippian believer's participation in the gospel with him. And so as he's praying, giving thanks, um, he's praying, he's confident about uh, the Spirit working in them. He's confident that they are participating with him in the ministry of the gospel. And so we see that giving of thanks is a key element of prayer. Well, a second element of prayer that Paul displays here is is this idea of intercession. That is, he's praying to God on behalf of the Philippian believers. And this he does faithfully. Uh, During Paul's regular time of prayer, he always remembered to pray for the Philippian believers. As we know, he also remembered to pray for all the believers and all the congregations of all the churches that he uh, visited and that he, uh, the Lord through him established. Well, this, of course, demonstrates that his commitment, Paul's commitment and his affection uh, toward them. And again, the specific supplication or content of his prayer uh, for them doesn't come until verse 9, but here we just want to note that Paul is committed to praying for these believers in Philippi. And his prayer is all-inclusive. Consider here his repetition of the word all. Verse 4, Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all. And then in verse 7, It is right for me to think this of you all. And so again, Paul is very careful to include every member of the congregation in his thoughts and in his prayers. No one is excluded. He's not just praying for the elders and the deacons and the officers of the church. He's not just praying for a few prominent members of the congregation. He's praying for all of them. Even the quarreling women 
that he addresses in chapter 4, the apostle is here praying for them as well. Now Paul's emphasis on interceding on behalf of the believers in Philippi, again, sets an example not only for the elders and the deacons of the Philippian church to imitate what he's doing, but it also sets an example for each one who is a member of that body. That they ought to do to be regularly remembering each other in prayer, even as Paul is here doing for them. And so he intercedes for them to give them an example of how they might intercede for one another. Well, the third element of prayer we discover here is that Paul's prayer is a joyful prayer. And verse 4, making requests for you all with joy. You see, there was something about the Philippian believers that really just uh, turns Paul's heart to warm and pleasant thoughts. And maybe it's because these were the first uh, decidedly Gentile believers that he went to minister to. There were no, we talked about last time, there was no synagogue in Philippi. And so Paul is there just ministering among the Gentiles. And the outpouring of the Spirit of God was, was abundant. And there were many who, who believed. And so Paul, as he thinks of these Philippian believers, he's, he's got these warm, fuzzy feelings of great joy. Now, again, joy is one of the key themes which Paul stresses in this letter. Even, and especially joy, in the midst of suffering and persecution. In fact, as Paul prays for them with joy, as he's praying for the Philippian uh, believers with joy every time he prays, we know that his own circumstances are much less than joyful. Paul's in chains. He's in prison awaiting his trial before Caesar. And he'll note later in the letter that this this could very well be the end of his life. He could be nearing the end. He's not sure what's going to happen. And yet he presses on this theme of great joy. Paul's not filled with gloom and doom. He has this joy within him, especially though when he remembers these Philippian believers. And so the key point for them to learn here from Paul's example is really relishing in times of prayer, of joyful prayer, even in the midst of suffering. And this was a critical lesson for the Philippian believers because even as Paul was writing to them, they also were undergoing trials and and persecution and, and various kinds of suffering. And as he challenges them to pray, to pray for one another, to pray for him, to pray for other believers, and uh, not only there in Philippi, but in other places as well, that they should do so. They should be praying filled with joy. They can pray being filled with joy because they know that the gospel continues to spread. Even though there's persecution, the gospel is continuing to spread. And they can pray knowing, pray with joy knowing that they're, they are privileged even to suffer for the sake of Christ and the, and the gospel. And we see um, Peter and John, especially uh, in, earlier in the book of Acts, uh, expressing this very thing, that they counted it a joy to suffer for the cause of Christ, to be beaten for the cause of Christ. And indeed, when we're persecuted because of our faith in Christ Jesus, well, then we should consider it great joy. 
because we are identifying with our Savior in that suffering. That just as we suffer for Him, He first suffered for us. And so this should stir up great joy as the Philippian, as Paul prays for the Philippian believers, he's, being, he's suffering, he, they're suffering, and he's encouraged them as, that as they pray, that they ought to be filled with great joy. But what's the instruction here for us in the 21st century? Well, it should hopefully be pretty straightforward. We ought to pray with these elements in mind as well. Our prayers should be focused on giving thanks to God. And so look around you. Look around and and take inventory of your life and consider the many good and wonderful blessings and the gifts which God through Jesus Christ has richly blessed you with and, and bestowed upon you. You have life. You have salvation and new life in Christ. You have the sure and certain hope of eternal life in His glorious presence. You have family. You have friends. You have uh, the fulfillment of basic daily needs. The Lord provides for you. He cares for you. He's given us this beautiful world in which we live. We have the wonders and the beauty of, of creation all around us. And on and on we can go thinking of all the things, all the blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon us and of uh, those blessings for which we should be thankful for. All these are good and perfect gifts which come down to us from the hand of our Heavenly Father. And it's critical that we remember to give thanks to God for these things at all times. Especially because we remember that these are blessed gifts of God's grace. That is, the gifts that He gives us are gifts that we don't deserve, and yet He freely and richly pours them out upon us through Jesus Christ. See, this is something that the wicked do not do. Right? We know Jesus says that, that God is, is uh, gracious and good to pour out even the rain upon the just and the unjust. Well, the, the just, the righteous ones, we give thanks to God because we know He is the giver of, of that good gift of rain, which we recently have enjoyed after several weeks of months of no rain at all. And yet the wicked, they don't rejoice and give thanks to God for that rain which then further adds condemnation upon their own heads because they rather acknowledge and serve the creature rather than acknowledge and worship the Creator. And so that's, we are then to give thanks to God for these things. And we should also, of course, we not only just these, those... Uh, uh, blessings of God's common grace are we to enjoy, but we also know that God has been gracious to us in giving us salvation. The salvation through Jesus Christ. Again, that when we were undeserving sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. That we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might stand even now righteous in the sight of God, reconciled to the Creator without fear of condemnation and eternal death in hell and so we should give thanks for these things we should give thanks to God that he has been so graciously to abundantly pour out these things upon us we should also give thanks that he has also been pleased to work in us and in our midst and to use us as instruments 
to minister the gospel to others and to be a blessing even to one another. And so we should give thanks for these things. Well, this leads to the second application for our prayers, and that is intercession. As Paul interceded for the Philippians and gave them an example to intercede for him and for one another, well, again, we too, during our regular times of prayer, we should call to mind the needs of one another that we might be able to support and encourage one another as members of the body of Christ. And so intercession for one another is key, a key part of our unity as the body of Christ. Again, though it's certainly a primary duty of the elders, especially to pray for the members of the congregation, it's also a duty and a privilege of each member to pray for one another. Now, a simple way to do this would be just to make a list of all the member families and individuals of the congregation and then work through that list uh, in your own private or times of family worship. Right? Maybe taking a family or uh, individual a day or working it through the week or praying for everyone uh, each day, each time you, you have your private time of private worship or family worship. But of course, in order to intercede and to pray for one another more effectively, well, it would actually be helpful to know how we can be praying for one another. Right? And so, how can I be praying for you and your family is a question that we should be asking one another on a regular basis. And you see, if we would take up this, this ministry of intercessory, intercessory prayer, praying for one another... And the great blessing in it is that if each of us commits to diligently intercede and to pray for one another, we see that then no one will be excluded. Everyone's going to be covered. And we will be greatly encouraged knowing that others are faithfully lifting us up in prayer before God's throne of grace. And as we think about that throughout the week, we can be encouraged and strengthened by it. And so intercessory prayer is vital to the life and ministry of the church and is something that we ought to be challenged to do. Because if we're all committed to praying for one another, then we will all receive those rich blessings. Well, thirdly, we're challenged to offer up prayers that are filled with joy and praise to God. And this, even when our own circumstances may be far from joyful. Certainly as we diligently intercede for others, uh, setting before uh, the Lord the needs and concerns of others, you see what happens there when we do that, is that not only do our hearts and minds become less focused on ourselves, right? too often when we pray we're just focused upon ourselves and our own needs, but if we're committed to praying for one another, well, as we focus upon others and their needs, well, we can be filled with joy because we know that as we're praying for others that our prayers will bless and encourage them. Even as we know it can be encouraged that they're praying for us and we can be blessed and encouraged. At a time when we may be feeling less useful because of our own uh, trying circumstances, right? Sometimes we're going through difficult times where... Uh, 
having our own trials and, and our own times of suffering, we just become focused upon ourselves. But if we can think about others for a moment and pray for others and pray for their needs, then we're reminded that they're praying for us and that we can be encouraged and this should stir within us great joy. We can be filled with joy as we grow in confidence knowing that God is faithful not only to hear our prayers, but to answer them according to His most holy and perfect will. And so if we're, a member, if we're members of a body that's committed to such thankful and, and heartfelt intercessory prayer, well, there can, then we can be filled with joy, again, knowing that as we pray for others and their needs and concerns, others are also praying faithfully for us and our needs and concerns. And again, no one will be left out. Such knowledge and such joy will go a long way in encouraging us, even during those periods of testing and and trial and difficulty that we may be going through. And so prayer is a great blessing to the ministry of the church. And that's the lesson that Paul, one of the lessons that Paul uh, points out here in the opening of this letter. Well, a second important lesson we discover in these verses has to do with our preservation by God. As we noted, one of the reasons Paul is thankful and filled with joy is because it's clearly evident to him that God is surely working in the hearts and in the lives of these Philippian believers. Paul expresses this in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul expresses great certainty in this truth. That he knows the Spirit of God is working in these believers. God has begun a good work in them. And if you started it, He's begun that work in them, then he'll see the project through and he will bring it to a sure and certain completion. But what is that good work that God has begun in them? Well, it's their faith in Christ and the salvation that he secured for them. When the Holy Spirit first opened Lydia's heart and indeed the hearts of all the Philippian believers to embrace the truth of the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them, that was just the beginning. The Spirit working in them started them on this long journey of faith and seeking to live their lives faithfully for the Lord. They haven't yet reached the end of that journey. There's still much that the Lord has to do in their hearts and their lives. They're not yet perfect. But one day, on the day of Christ Jesus, that is the day Christ returns in power and glory as King and, and Judge of all the earth, On that day, they will be perfected. They will, by God's grace and power, and the power of the Spirit in them, be brought through to the end. And by expressing his confidence in this great truth, Paul is reassuring the Philippian believers that God is surely working in their midst. And this assurance would mean a great deal to them, especially, again, in the midst of their own suffering and the persecution that they're currently enduring. Especially at these times when they might be tempted to doubt or question whether God is still with them. Paul here assures them that, yes, He is still with you. 
And He has promised that He'll bring it to completion, this great work that He has started in them. In fact, Paul, as Paul will remind them later in chapter 1, the suffering and the persecution that they're enduring is actually a great proof that God has not forgotten them. There's something for us to think about. It's proof that God hasn't forgotten them, but that He's seeking to form and fashion them after the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ through that time of trial and suffering. Because Christ endured and suffered much for their sakes, that they are also called to suffer for Him. And this is the confidence that Paul expresses to them. And again, he he knows this to be true because it's the same plan and purpose which God has been working out and bringing to completion even in Him. Right As He sits in chain in prison in a prison cell. Now we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand. And Paul isn't boasting confidence in the strength of their faith. He's not saying, oh, you've got this great, this great faith and look how strong it is. He's not uh, boasting in how far they progressed in their, in their sanctification and their holiness based on the good works that they're doing. No, not at all. Paul's confidence is based solely in the grace of God's faithfulness to them. God is perfectly faithful and reliable. He doesn't leave any job undone. He will bring it to completion. He brings all things to completion and perfection according to His most holy and perfect will. So Paul's confidence is in God's faithful covenant love toward His people. And the wonderful thing is that this is nothing really new for the people of God. This was the same confidence that the Old Testament saints could have as well as they look forward to Christ. In Psalm 138, verse 8, the psalmist saying, The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Well, this is the same thing Paul is saying here to the Philippians. The Lord will perfect which concerns you. What He started, He will bring to perfection. He will not leave the work of His hands. God will accomplish what He started. He will not forsake this gracious work that He has first begun in you. He'll preserve His people and bring them to their appointed end, which we know is glorious perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ on that last great day. Beloved of God, this confidence that Paul expresses to the Philippians is certainly our hope and our confidence as well. As we go through our life of faith and especially during those times when we may be tried and tested, it might be a great temptation for us to think that that God has abandoned us, that He's left us and that He's given up on us. Perhaps it's because of a particular uh, recurring sin that we struggle with in our lives. Because it seems as though we've, we've made little progress. That we should be better uh, farther along in our sanctification than what we truly are. And we may wonder, well, has God given up on me? Why, otherwise, why do I continue to struggle with the same sin over and over and over and over again, each day and every day? Why haven't I gained victory? <clears throat> 
Or perhaps you might be so overcome with all kinds of trials. Things like sicknesses and persecution and just an overbearing stress. And again, you may doubt God's presence. You may wonder and ask, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Why have you allowed me to endure these troubles? They're too much for me. I can't overcome them. Brothers and sisters, if these are the tempting thoughts that plague you, then you need to take heed of the words of writing to the Hebrews, Hebrews 12, verse 2, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Don't fix your eyes on your troubles. Don't even fix your eyes on yourself and your own sin. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Know this, that at the Spirit of God has truly awakened your heart to believe in the Gospel, if the Spirit of, has truly planted that seed of faith and it's been firmly planted and a good work of the Spirit of God has begun in you, well then know with all certainty that God will surely bring it to completion. And Jesus comforts His disciples with the truth that those who are in the grips of the Father's hands will never be snatched out. No one can snatch them out. We can't even jump out. God holds us firmly in His hand. And He promises to be with us. He promises to strengthen us and encourage us even to the end of the age. And again, He promises and will we'll bring it about to bring us to that point of perfection. Again, this doesn't mean though that we'll reach perfection in this life. Not at all. But we're works in progress. And we're assured that God will be faithful to bring about in our lives that which He promised. And that one day we will be free from all doubts, from all temptations, and from all sin. And we will be like Christ. And know this, that even when suffering and affliction come into your lives, our sovereign God uses those things to form and fashion you after the perfect image of Christ driving you to Himself that you might rest in His all-sufficient grace so that you find strength in this great truth. If your faith is in Christ alone for salvation, then God is surely working in your life and He will bring you to completion just as He's promised. Friends, this is a truth that we can stand on and we can put our hope in because God has promised it. Now if God is working in our lives, it doesn't mean that we just then sit back and do nothing at all. Right? No. In fact, it's just the opposite. Right? It's not just, a, oh, God's working. We planted the seed. I sit back and don't have to do anything. No. God's work in us not only it's not only to form and fashion us after the likeness of Christ, but He works in us so that we can then work for His glory and to give praise and and thanks to His name. This is what we see in the second reason that Paul gives as to why he's thankful with great joy for the Philippian believers. The confidence he has in God's faithfulness 
again, not the faithfulness of the believers, but it's the faithfulness of God and in God's grace. That confidence that he has in God's faithfulness is actually evidenced in the, in the Philippians' lives by their participation in the gospel. We see this first in verse 5. For your fellowship, or your uh, joining in, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then again in verse 7. And just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Right? So they're part of this fellowship. A fellowship where we're together. Right? They're taking part together. And then they're partakers of the grace of God. They're participants with Paul in the gospel and in God's grace. But what does this mean though? Just how do they participate? Well, there's two key ways here. First, they share a common faith. When they first believed, a common bond was established. A, a familial bond, not, of, not one of flesh and blood, but of and by the power of the Spirit of God. Although Paul was a Roman citizen as they were, well, he was a Jew and they were Gentiles, and we know the history between the Jew and the Gentiles, they hated one another. And yet now these two, who were once enemies, have become one in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. And, and this becomes a common theme, especially as Paul is ministering in these, uh, these Greek and Roman uh, cities, where there's kind of a mixed bag of, of Jews, converted Jews and, and Gentile believers... He emphasized Ephesians is a great example of this stressing of unity. Philippians is another uh, book that stresses this unity of the believers, Jew and Gentile together. That they're now one people, one holy nation, one body in Christ Jesus. The glorious blessings and promises of the gospel that Paul enjoyed. See, now they're enjoying as well. They're enjoying them together. And because they've persevered in the faith and have been preserved by God's grace, they continue to enjoy those blessings and promises again, even though they're enduring suffering. But it isn't just the faith that they share which makes them participants and partakers together. No, it's also what they're doing with that faith as they participate and partner with Paul in the broader ministry of the gospel by supporting and encouraging him. Right? This is what we see more clearly in verse 7 as Paul rejoices and commends them because they have supported him not only in his defense and confirmation of the gospel as he traveled from place to place uh, proclaiming its truth, but even now, at this time when Paul was in prison, they continued to support him and send letters and, and uh, finances to, to support him and, and provision for him, for him even as he was in prison. And again, this is why Paul is filled with such great affection for them that he even has them in his heart. And this is why he's so bold in his confidence about their standing before God. Because they haven't only received and believed the gospel... But you see, they've shared it, and they're living it, and they're supporting it. 
And this they continue to do. They're doing it close to home in, in the city of Philippi, proclaiming and continuing to pro- proclaim the gospel, serving and ministering the gospel to those in their own community as they have opportunity. But they're also, from a distance, doing it by supporting Paul and his ministry. Again, they're supporting him financially. They, they sent Epaphroditus, who was a, a son of the congregation, to uh, be an encouragement to Paul and to, uh, to help him in any way that he can. And so they truly are partners with Paul in God's grace as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus works in them and through them for His glory. So they share in this fellowship because they all share this common faith in Christ. But they're also partners together in the ministry of the Gospel. Beloved of God, shouldn't we be so challenged to do the same? Those who believe in the gospel and trust in Christ for salvation, again, they have a, we have a close, intimate bond with everyone else who makes that same profession and confession. It's what brings us together, even on this day, in this place, is our common faith in Christ. We are a congregation of God's people, united together with Christ and with one another, through faith in Christ. Such participation and fellowship is at the heart of what it means to have communion and fellowship with one another. But we ought not to stop there. Indeed, we can't stop there. If we're to be called a faithful body of Christ, we must be challenged to put our faith into practice and to become partakers together in the work of the ministry which Christ our Lord has called us to do. And what is that ministry? Well, it's that we first and foremost ought to use the gifts which God has given to each of us to encourage and support one another. As we consider this morning, we should take interest in one another. We should pray for one another. We should spur one another on to good works. We should encourage the discouraged. We should visit the sick. We should give to those who lack. We should grieve with those who grieve. And we should rejoice with those who rejoice. This is the ministry that we're called to have to one another as members of the body of Christ. But as we see here, participation in the gospel goes beyond those gathered here. We're challenged to partner together in in the Great Commission. First in our own community, proclaiming and sharing the gospel with the lost, ministering to the poor and needy, being faithful witnesses in word and deed to those around us, we must be faithful with that. And we're also to support and encourage the ministry of the gospel, not just here, but in other places as well, throughout the nation, throughout the world, as we support others who would carry the gospel forth in other places. When we faithfully do this, and we support and encourage the going forth of the gospel in whatever way we can, brothers and sisters, we truly become partners and participants in the gospel. We not only have a stake in it as a gift from God, but we also ought to have an investment in it of our time, of our talents, and of our treasures to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the great challenge before you this morning. To embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. To cling and confess the truth that He has given to us in His Word. To pray for one another. 
to use your gifts and to minister to others both inside and outside the church so that the grace of God might abound more and more in you and through you to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for this truth of your word and the challenge set before us that we would truly be mindful of just prayer and giving thanks to you in our prayers, but also that we would be faithful at interceding for one another, that we would be a body who truly prays for one another and cares for one another, and that through that we would be encouraged and filled with great joy, inexpressible. And so we just praise you and thank you. We also praise you and thank you, Lord, that you preserve us that you have given us this great promise and this great truth, that if you begin a work in us by your grace, that you will bring it to completion. And there are times when we look at our lives and we think we are so, so far away from the end, and we get discouraged. But Lord, may we take hope in this, that not only can we be filled with joy because we know our brothers and sisters are praying for us, And we're praying for them. But also, we know you will be faithful to your promise. And even though it looks impossible from our perspective, we know you will bring us to completion, to that point of perfection in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to be faithful as we seek to fellowship together, to be participants and and partakers of the gospel ministry, to encourage one another, to build one another up, but also to take the gospel forth into our own community and to support the gospel going forth throughout the nation and throughout the world. That we would stake a claim and invest in the kingdom to come. And so we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for reminding us us of these things. And we pray that your Spirit would truly impress these truths upon all hearts, drawing us all closer to yourself. Give us the grace and sustain us and to preserve us until the very end. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.